pray. Oh, Father, we come before you today seeing through both lenses of the reality of who we are. On the one hand, you have revealed to us the depths of our sin. And on the other, through the other lens, we realize that we are treasured by you and loved by you and cared for by you beyond measure. And you have poured out upon us grace upon grace and given us promise after promise to empower us to live lives that glorify you. And we long to do that better. And so I pray, Father, that your word would accomplish that in my heart and in the hearts of all who are here. Change us, Lord. Feed us, lead us, and change us. For we pray by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like us to start, of course, we are in Hebrews 11, but I'd like for you to turn back with me, first of all, to Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, because the, the personality that the author of Hebrews wants us to look at this morning is Abraham. And so I took the time this week to read the entire account of Abraham. If you're looking for something to do this afternoon that would feed your soul, some passage of Scripture to read and meditate on, just go into Genesis and start with about chapter 12 and keep on reading until the story of Abraham is done. You'll get up into the 20s before it's done, and you will have spent significant time in the Word, but you will have been blessed by it, I assure you. But Genesis 15 is a key text because this is, also known as the Abrahamic Covenant. This is where God not only promises Abraham a couple of things that we'll see, but he also takes it up a notch and turns those promises into a bona fide covenant with Abraham. And I'm just going to read it without any commentary, and then we'll get into our text this morning, and this will kind of lay out the background. And so Genesis chapter 15 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, and notice he's not Abraham yet, in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. And perhaps your text here says, Your reward should, shall be great. But I believe it should be translated better, your, I am your very great reward. So let's read that again. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, your very great reward. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am a child? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is to be my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. For one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness, the foundation of the gospel. Verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land, to possess it. He said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me three, a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid them each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drew the, Abram drew them off. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, 
where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven, smoke, and a flaming torch, fire, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of, of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. That is God's great promise to Abraham. Now turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews has now introduced three men whose lives were examples of the kind of faith that God is calling us to live by. It's a faith that clings to God's promises as if they had already been fulfilled for us. As if they had already come. And a faith that sees the glory of the outcome of those promises, though they yet remain invisible. Verse 2 tells us that it was by this kind of faith that men of old, men like Abel and Enoch and Noah, gained approval by God. In fact, it is the only kind of life God approves of. This life of faith that he is describing and now illustrating for us is the only kind of life that God approves of. Namely, the life of faith. But these are not the only examples of a faithful life that the author wants us to consider. There's perhaps no one in the Bible whose name is more associated with faith and more consistently talked about as being a man of faith than the man Abraham, Father Abraham. Paul devotes the better part of Romans 4, which Brent read for us a little while ago, to Abraham's example of being justified by faith rather than being justified through law-keeping. He does the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. A significant part of the chapter is devoted to Abraham's faith and the implications that has for you and me in our relationship with God. James also appeals to the kind of faith that Abraham possessed. It was not just an intellectual faith. It was a faith that worked. And so it comes as no surprise that the author of Hebrews would point us back to Abraham, who has become, for the Jewish people and for the church, the paragon of faith. But again, we need to remind ourselves that faith is not something that is merely intellectual and static. It is a living, active, and powerful thing that moves God's people to do what cannot be explained except that those people are trusting something other than what we can see to accomplish the things that they intend to do and that God intends to do through them. Namely, they are trusting in God's promises. The promises of God. And so before we get into this text, I want you to, I asked you to turn here, I realize that, but I want you to, to turn aside with me. Just keep your finger here because we're going to do a little side trail. I want you to turn to Second Peter. Just not many pages over. Three, four, five, maybe six pages over to the right in your Bible. In Second Peter chapter 1, and I want to read for you, with you, verses 1 through 4. Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus our Lord, your text may say. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, namely his glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent, what? Promises, so that by them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Or a better way to translate that would be by evil desires. Now, I want to take the time to pick this apart because it's going to set up for us this passage in Hebrews 11 about Abraham. Now, there's four things I want to tell you about Abraham. We're only going to have time to do two today because I really think that we need to understand this passage first to help us understand what significance does this have? Who cares that Abraham was the paragon of faith and did these four things by faith? Who cares? What relevance does that have? It has all the relevance in the world. Abel, like Enoch, like Noah, like Abraham. And most of all, how do I become like Christ? Isn't that the answer? I mean, the question that we all want answered, how do I grow and change? What can I do? Lord, you've told me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Help me with that. Here's some help. Three words. You should write these down. This is going to open up this text for you. The three words are these. Knowledge, power, godliness. Knowledge, power, godliness. Now, let's look back at the, the second Peter text, verse 2. Notice in verse 2 that he prays that grace and peace would be multiplied to us in what? The knowledge. That's okay. You can talk back with me, to me, or, or shout or whatever. <laughs> In the knowledge of God. So this means, uh, uh, the means of grace, at least in this context, the means of grace in us toward godliness, toward making us holy, begins... With knowledge. How do I become holy? Lord, give me three steps. Okay, this is an oversimplification, but it is what the text is saying. And so give me three steps. Step one, you gotta have knowledge. You gotta have the knowledge of God. It is a means of grace to bring you to holiness. We must learn something so that we can know something relative to God and the Lord Jesus Christ that will move us on toward holiness. Okay, so we know we need knowledge. We don't know what that knowledge consists of yet, but we need knowledge. Now, verse 3. It is God's power that grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness. You see that in verse 3? Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, we cannot become godly on our own. Notice the very first thing Peter says. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Yes, we have work to do in this faith. And God has a work to do in this salvation. But listen, God's work is an independent work, and it comes first. And our work is a dependent work, and it comes second. 
And so he is saying, in other words, we cannot become godly on our own. We can become like Abel and Enoch and Noah. Yes, that's what he's wanting us to strive for. But we cannot do that on our own. It has to be by the power of God. And by the way, God has to exert this tremendous power on our behalf to grant that. And that, beloved, is the definition of grace. Grace is not a static thing. We tend to think of faith as believing intellectually, and we tend to think of grace as leniency. And so faith is something that I do in my mind, uh, and it certainly is part of that. Uh, that. That certainly is part of that faith. And grace, we tend to think of God being passive so that when I commit sin, he overlooks it. That's grace. But that's an oversimplification of grace. Actually, when God doesn't give us what we deserve because of our sin, that's mercy. Grace is that active power that then moves into our lives and changes us and carries us and regenerates us, first of all, and then begins the process of making us, making us, making us incrementally from glory to glory, holy, even as Christ is holy. We need that power. We need that grace. And notice that the end of that verse At the end of that verse, that power is granted to us. And notice how it is through the true, what? Knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And so we have two parts to this so far. We've got knowledge. We have to know something. And what we've just learned is whatever that thing is that we need to learn, that cooperates with God in, in, in some aspect that God uses that as a means of grace in a powerful way to bring about holiness and godliness and increased faith in our lives. Follow me so far? So, okay, what's the connector? What's the knowledge? Third, I want you to notice God's goal. As we've already seen, I just want to make this clear, is to make us godly. His divine power, notice, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and what? Godliness. So that we see here that some kind of knowledge of God in Jesus Christ is the means of the power of God to produce that godliness in our lives. And so knowledge, power, godliness, the question that remains is what kind of knowledge is he speaking of? Lord, tell me, what kind of knowledge do I need? Is it, do I need to understand dichotomy versus trichotomy? Do I need to understand superlapsarianism as opposed to infralapsarianism? (laughs) Me too. Um, Do we need to understand the, uh, is it transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or something else relative to the Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine? I mean, that's all knowledge. This is all theological issues that... At some point in our faith, we may need to wrestle with or not. What is it that I need to know? Do I need to know all of that? Do I need to know everything that's in the Bible? What do I, and and if that's the case, what hope do I have? I don't have time to study to that depth. And even if I go to seminary, I won't learn at all. And yet we know the gospel is something that everybody should be able to understand and put in place. You don't need a theological degree You don't need to have the greatest teachers or preachers in the world at your church, praise the Lord for that, to become the man or woman of God that God wants you to be. You don't have to learn it all. There's simplicity here. So what kind of knowledge are we talking about? Verse 4 helps us. Because verse 4 kind of restates what he said in verse 3, but he does it in different words. Now follow along with me. Verse 4. By these, namely the glory and excellence of God in Christ, by these He, God, has granted to us His precious and magnificent, what? Promises. 
so that by them, by what? Come on. We're doing a little Bible study here. By the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by evil desires. By Christ's glory and excellence, He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through epithumia, evil desires. And so let's plug our three words in here. The knowledge of God consists of the promises of God. By trusting in these promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. We become, first of all, regenerated. Because what does a person do when they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? What they're saying is, God, I believe your promise that you will cleanse me. And regenerate me and save me if I put my faith in you, confessing to you who I truly am. God, I confess that. I'm a wretched, miserable sinner. I put all of my hope in your promise that through Jesus Christ I can be born again. God, make me born again. I trust your promise. You become a part of the divine nature. You partake of the divine nature. And every time you do that in your life, You've experienced this. Every time you do that, something happens inside of you. So that when you're walking in the Spirit, you're studying God's Word, you're meditating on His truth, you're devouring His promises and meditating on them. You know in your own heart and your own experience that when you're living like that, The power of sin diminishes in your life. The temptations that normally snag you kind of go away for a while. And your love for the Lord Jesus accelerates and rises so that you love Him more. You find yourself being emotional about Him more because God is doing something in your heart. That partaking of the divine nature is connected to His previous statement about the power of God. That's the power of God. By trusting in them, we become partakers of the divine nature. That's power. We have knowledge and power so that we can escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. That is godliness. And so the key verse here, seeing, verse 3, that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Knowledge, power, godliness. Beloved, all of us need to understand that the spiritual battles we faced most often Involve the warfare of desires. They're desires battling against one another. As Paul wrote in Romans 7, there's a part of us that really wants to be pleasing to the Lord. He says, I, I, I agree with the law. I love the law in, in my mind. On the other hand, in my flesh, I love my sin. I, I do it because I like it. Oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from the body of this death, right? Ever felt that? Of course you have. Within our soul, there rages a battle of desires. How do you fight sinful desires? How do you fight sinful desires? What Peter is teaching us is that we simply must fight desire with desire. Every temptation makes a promise. Every temptation in your life makes you a promise. The lure of cheating on your taxes is the promise that you will save money and then you'll be happy. The lure of pornography is the promise that if you look, it'll feel good and you'll be happy. The lure of divorce 
is that if we leave, if I leave my husband, my wife, I will escape the painful conflict in my life, and then I'll be happy. Or in a, in a passive scenario, the reason that we don't share our faith, though we know the gospel very well, is because of the promise, the false promise, that if I just keep my mouth shut and not stir up the waters and make any waves and, and work up someone's indignation against me, then I will be happy. And we could just spend the rest of our morning talking about temptation after temptation after temptation. Just plug in yours. What is it? Drinking? Drugs? Is it television watching excessively? Are you a lover of comfort, a lover of things? Every temptation comes with a promise. And so the only way to fight temptation in our lives is to cling to better promises. Better promises. Higher promises. Promises that God has made that offer us a greater joy, greater peace, greater happiness, uh, greater than any promise sin can ever offer. And the application of this text in Second Peter is simply this. The divine power that enables us to escape the lure of evil desires comes from knowing and believing the promises of God. So when you open your Bible... Today or tomorrow morning or whenever it is you spend time with God, when you open your Bible, don't just read for the sake of checking it off your do list for the day. Read with a very focused purpose. God, show me a promise. Show me something in your word. I was doing this the other day and I didn't even realize I was doing it. At a Psalm uh, 70... Um, well, 79 and, well, that's not right, 83 and 84. And 84, here's what the Lord says, and I read it earlier in my prayer. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the gates of the house of my God than to dwell in the opulent tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. Now listen to this. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It's a promise. That's a promise. That's something you can meditate on throughout the day. Something unexpected and bad happens. Remind yourself, wait a minute here. God has made me a promise. He is not withholding any good thing from me. This must be good for me. It must be good. And that brings us back to Hebrews 11. When you open your Bible, you look for promises, read it to discover the promises of God, put all of your hope in those promises, the kind of faith that Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 talk about, that kind of faith. God, I know you've made these promises. I don't see them. But this is all the evidence I need to believe them and to make my decisions based upon them. When we look at Abraham's amazing life back in Hebrews 11, we might ask what it is that made him such an unusually faithful man of God. And the answer is this, simply this, what made him an unusual example of godliness in his generation? His faith. His faith. And what was Abraham's faith in? What was the object of Abraham's faith? Was it not the promises that God had made him? We began this message by reading that passage known as the Abrahamic Covenant. And this is the great text in Genesis whereby God promises to Abram two things, a son and a land. And from that son and on that land would come a people 
who were too great to number. And they would come through him. A son and a land. These are the very things the author of Hebrews refers to in uh, Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. The reason that God had, was so pleased with Abraham's life is that he did not let the promises of sin rule his life. But rather, the reason that God was so pleased with Abraham is that Abraham made a concerted effort and resolve to let the promises of God rule his life. The first two of these promises relate to God's promise of the land. And the other two relate to the promises of a son. And I think we'll have opportunity this morning to look at the first two. But the example, uh, the first example of how the promises of God ruled Abraham's life is this. He moved, that is Abraham, moved to a place he didn't know. Abraham moved to a place he didn't know. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. If you pay attention to the structure of this verse, we might read it like this. By faith, Abraham obeyed by going, not knowing where he was going. I mean, that's what the text is saying. The rest of it is explanation. By faith, Abraham obeyed by going, not knowing where he was going. And the really interesting thing here in the Greek is the present participle that should be translated, when he was being called, obeyed. In other words, while he was being called, while God was still speaking, he already started obeying. And no sooner was the call being given than it was being obeyed. As soon as Abram understood the call, he started packing. Imagine going home and telling your wife that. Honey, we're moving to New Jersey. Why? Don't ask questions. Just get in the car. I think there'd be a lot of questions. <laughs> and I'd have most of them, and my kid, kids would have most of the rest. But he didn't give himself time to consider the promises of sin. He didn't wait, awa- wait around weighing out his options. Oh, this is a promise of God. Okay, is there anybody else out there? He seized hold of the promise of God and began packing to leave. And where was God going to lead him? He didn't know. All he knew, according to verse 8, is that God had promised him an inheritance. God had promised him a land. A fertile land outside of Ur that would have been for his descendants. For the believer, God has given us a similar promise, has he not? He has promised us a land of our own, the land of our inheritance, a land where there will be no more sorrow or tears, no more death, no more battle with sin. It will be a place where we will live in the presence of the Lord who loves us with an everlasting love and who purchased us for Himself, by His grace, for His glory, to our everlasting joy. And there we will live in the blessed and uninterrupted fellowship with Him for eternity. But that promise has implications for how we live today. And the Bible speaks to this all through, especially the New Testament. God has given us the knowledge of this promise to produce the power we need to overcome evil desires while we live this life. The hope of heaven should do something to us. The promise of heaven should rule us so that we don't live like everyone else lives. 
If anyone loves the world, John said, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Because that's not what the Lord has promised you. He has promised you another land that you cannot see. But because God has promised, we believe. Don't think for a minute that Abraham had no desire to live in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was the most modern and developed society in the world. In fact, really, it was the only developed society in the world at the time. It is where all the best conveniences of life were to be found. To live in Ur was to live in prosperity, to live in comfort. Why would anyone get up one morning and turn his back on the comforts of this life and all of the the things that a big city offered? And then grab his wife and his children and whatever family members, extended families, wanted to go with all of their donkeys and all of their whatever food they could carry and walk out into the wilderness. Why would anyone do that? That's not the way it is with the promises of God. You don't, you don't hold back. It's safe to let His promises rule our lives because, as the author said in Hebrews 10.23, He who promised is faithful. You see, there's another part to this. It's not just knowledge of the promise. It is a knowledge of the one who made the promise. Because the promise is only as good as the person making it. I remember when I was a kid, my brother and I were playing out in the woods in New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey has trees. That's a lot more trees than here in Texas. And we were playing out in the woods. We always did. We were climbing trees, horsing around, you know, doing things. And with our friends, and somehow they got me up in this tree. I was younger than him, and I couldn't get down. And I'm up on this branch, the last branch on the tree coming down, and I was afraid to jump. And my brother looked up at me, and he said, Come on, little brother, jump. I'll catch you. Okay, promise, right? <laughs> Didn't occur to me to consider the source of that promise. I jumped off the limb, and I granted he tried but we both splatted on the ground. And it was painful. But you know what? God's not like that. His promises aren't like that. His promises are always safe. When God calls us to do something by faith, He is always there to catch us. Come on, Abram. Leave Ur. I have an inheritance for you. Trust me. And somehow Abram knew, we don't know how, we don't know what revelation he had previous to this, but somehow Abram knew that he who promised is faithful. And so he trusted. Abraham had no doubt that he would be caught and God would indeed lead him to his inheritance. As believers, we're like Abraham. God has promised us an eternal inheritance because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. In fact, the author of Hebrews mentions this in chapter 9, verse 15. He says, for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's us. The point is, in Christ, we have received the promise of the internal inheritance. The question is, does, listen, does that promise rule your life? Because if it doesn't, some other promise does. Some other promise does. Does it rule your life? Do we make decisions about how we will dress, how we will spend our money, who we will marry, where we will work, and all of the nitty-gritty mundane issues of life based on the promises of God? Or do we simply say we believe it? 
We know that faith was active in Abraham's life because he moved to the place he did not know. He physically, actively packed up the trek, loaded up his family, and moved because he believed that he who promised is faithful. And so secondly, first, he moved to a place he didn't know. Secondly, he lived for a city he couldn't see. He lived for a city he couldn't see. Look at verses 9 and 10, Hebrews 11. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So after leaving Ur, Abram, you might remember, settled down in a place called Hebron for a while, but eventually God led him and some of his relatives, you remember Lot and his wife went with him as well as others, God led them to Canaan, somewhere in the Fertile Crescent. It was a fertile land that was perfect for a man like him to settle into, like the pilgrims who left England and suffered on that long six-week journey through the storm to make it to Plymouth Plantation. And they came to the new land, and they built houses, and they built a town, and they established a society there. And Abraham had every right to go into that land and do the same thing, but he didn't. He didn't. The text says he continued to live in tents. He continued to live a simple life of detachment from the world. He continued to live as a pilgrim and a foreigner in that land. He continued to live as one who had no rights in that place, who was just there passing through. And he did it for decade after decade after decade after decade. He never bought any property. He never owned anything for himself. In fact, the only thing that Abraham ever owned, there was one exception. He bought a piece of land in a field where there was a cave. And it was somewhere near Hebron. And he bought that piece of ground with the cave for the purpose of burying the one who had been his precious wife and companion all those years. The only land he ever purchased. The only thing he ever owned in the promised land. And here's a man who understood what it meant to live in the world, but not of it. He got to live in Canaan, but he never took ownership of it. He never made the world his home. Why? Because he understood that God, God's ultimate promise was a land that he could never see in this life. What God had planned for him were things that he would not see in this life. In fact, it wasn't just land. It was also a city. All his life, he and his children, Isaac and Jacob, lived in tents, but they never settled down. Why? Because they were looking for a city that had something that tents never have. At least not those tents. They have foundation. They were looking for something, a city that had something their tents could never have. A, a rock-solid foundation. And not just any strong foundation. <clears throat> that city had foundations that were designed and built by God himself. And so Abram was a pilgrim, and he wandered. And every city he saw, perhaps he thought, is this the city of God? Nope. Let's take a rest for a while and keep on moving. Is this the city of God? Nope. Let's take a rest for a while, feed the sheep, and keep moving. We're just passing through. Apparently, the Lord had not only promised Abraham a land, but a land with a city whose architect and builder was God himself. So when he got to Canaan, he didn't purchase land or build a town. He just waited and waited and waited, believing that God would make good on his promise. Without complaint, he waited for God to fulfill what was promised. 
And sometimes waiting is the most difficult part of faith, isn't it? We know of such promises as no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. But when the good things we want don't seem to come, we begin to question the veracity of God's promises. When the child she always dreamed of is never conceived, God, are you really not withholding from me something good? When the career he hoped for never materializes, God, but I really wanted it. Is it really true that you would never withhold any good thing from me? When Mr. Right turns out to be Mr. Wrong, not the guy for you. God, how can that be? Could this really be good for me? When the diagnosis of pain turns out to be more serious than you thought. Lord, you won't withhold any good thing from me? I can't see it, oh God. I believe it. Help my unbelief. And then the more we question God's promises, the more we're tempted to listen to sin's promises. After all, if God's not going to make me happy, I'll just do it myself. I'll take matters into my own hands. That's evil desire. That's lust. Lust is any time you want something so badly, whatever it is, it could be a good thing. It could be for your wife to submit to your hus- for your husband to lead. could be for, I don't know, you to be happy in some way. To get something that you desire. Anytime you desire that thing so much that you're willing to sin to get it, or you're willing to sin if you can't have it, that's evil desire. That's epithumia. That's lust. And so the question is always, will I be ruled by the promises of God or will I be ruled by the promises of sin? Abraham, as a rule, did not allow himself to go there. He kept his focus on the God who never once let him down, the God who loved him absolutely and unconditionally, even on those recorded occasions when Abraham committed blatant sin. But as a rule, he trusted in the promises of God. The God who treasured him like a precious son and would never do anything that was not for his well-being. The only way to truly be faithful in the times of waiting, beloved, is to remember God's promises and to cling to them as if they were already a reality. To trust them as the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction or the evidence or the proof of things that are not seen. You say, well, really all I want is to be happy. God wants you to have that desire. God wants you to have that desire. C.S. Lewis says, if you discover in this life that there is nothing in this world that fulfills your desire, then we should conclude we were not created for this world. That's what Abraham concluded. And the author of Hebrews wrote this, Hebrews 6, 11 and 12, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The reason Abraham became known as such an example of faith was because he resolved to be ruled by the promises of God rather than being ruled by the promises of sin. And so we're left to ask ourselves, I am left to ask myself, what rules my life? What will rule my life when I leave this room and go home? On what basis will I make decisions to do this or that? Or to refrain from doing this or that? 
Behind every action, given the choice, behind there is a desire. And that desire in that moment is ruling your life. It's a promise. And it is either a promise of God or it is the promise of sin. The reason we even know about Abraham is because he lived a life that was ruled by the promises of God. We've discussed two ways that that was the case. Next week we'll look at the other two. And then the astounding text that I'll just tease you with a little bit here this morning, and that is verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared that city for them. Let's pray. Father, we know in this life there are many things that occur that we don't desire, and it provokes new desires within us. And we are so prone to wander away from the promises of God. And we are so easily allured by the promises of sin. Oh, Father, teach us. Teach us. Teach us your knowledge, your promises that will produce the awesome power of the divine nature in our souls to effect godliness in our lives. All of it, Lord Jesus, for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray it. Amen.